Hello and welcome to The Wound Doctors, a podcast series dedicated to the study and improved treatment of wounds. These episodes are brought to you by Convitec, pioneering trusted medical solutions to improve the lives they touch. My name is Rod Murray, and together with the real brains behind this operation, my co-host, Dr. Francis Henshaw, we hope that by the end of each episode, you'll know a little bit more about wounds and how to treat them than you did at the start. Dr. Fran, always good to be with you, but who have you lined up for us to chat with today, and what will we be chatting about? Hello there, Rod. Yes, today uh, I've got an old colleague of mine, Ian Reid. So um, Ian set up the high-risk foot service at Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney about 20 years ago, and um, I came to work for him. And we worked together for a very long time, and our paths have crossed uh, on many occasions since. And um, yeah, it's good to see you again, Ian. Hello. Thank you for having Ian me. Ian knows what he's in for, Fran, as we just discussed having known you for 20 years. So this is not your typical dry medical discussion, Ian, as I'm sure you're aware. Fran, what do we need to know from Ian today? Well, Ian is a wealth of knowledge about wound healing, and I like to think that I know a thing or two about it myself. So Ian, today I thought what we talk about is something that I get asked about a lot, and I used to have to teach a lot when I was a lecturer, which is wound healing and why don't wounds heal? So tell us, Ian, what's your take on this? Well, I think you can look at it in two ways. Um, I think every clinician has had that moment where they've pulled their hair out and said, why isn't this healing? Um, And often it's very easy for clinicians, I think, to fall into the there's something wrong here with the patient. Um, but really, I, I try as best I can to take a step back and think, well, what have I missed as a clinician and how can I be a bit more reflective about this? Um, and have I actually identified all of the modifiable um, uh, factors that are preventing this wound from healing? And what do you mean by a modifiable factor? Can you give us some examples? Um, so... One of the challenges I think that clinicians have is being able to um, delve into the patient's understanding of why they have a wound. Um, uh, and a classic example of that is um, the patient who um, you, you've been treating for, for months and months and they're, they're telling you all of the right things in the clinic. They're taking, they've taken their antibiotics when they've had an infection they're using the right dressings. They state that they're resting and elevating and doing all of the things that you've asked them. And then one day, months down the track, you realise that they've also been doing all these other things that like you never asked them to do. Saturday. Yeah, or, or oh, you know, I've been I've been taking my dressing off for ten minutes every morning and letting it dry out in the sun because that's what you're meant to do, even though you never had that conversation with them. Um, and it's always that what your understanding of as a clinician compared to what does the patient understand. And I think that's one of the critical things that you've got to get to the bottom of. Yeah, I agree with you. And actually, I can give a really good example because I, I had a patient once and she had an ulcer on the bottom of her foot and she worked as a doctor's receptionist. And she told me that she just sat at the desk all day and she didn't do very much. So I was pretty happy about that because I thought she's not going to be walking on this ulcer and we know that it's not good to walk on an ulcer. 
and um, it wouldn't heal. And it just happened that at the university, I got some of these really fancy new activity monitors. So we strapped one onto her wrist, and it turned out that she was actually walking about 9,000 steps a day, which is an awful lot more than an average person would. So there was no wonder her foot wasn't healing, but she didn't think she was doing a lot. Um, but another thing that was, was quite funny is after that, she became like quite obsessed with keeping her steps down. And, um, and, and her foot started healing really well. And then she said one day um, she was folding the washing and she got 4,000 steps doing that. So, um, yeah, you, even waving your arms around. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. She could fold um, my smalls any day. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, I guess that there is this thing. I, I, I don't think it's that people are telling us lies. I think no. that it's just that they're actually um, not aware of all the things that we need to know about. And it's very easy as a clinician when you consider what is modifiable to think, I've done this, I've done that, you've gone through your your algorithm or your checklist of what you as a clinician need to do for that wound. But that's only a very small part of that story. And the patient has to live with that wound. They have, they're with it 24 hours a day. You might be with it for an hour a week if, if you're lucky. Um, and so trying to um, understand that you're kind of partnering with that person and, and trying to get into their head because they're the ones that are managing it. You're just giving that advice on how they should manage it. And I think that it's a very nuanced conversation that um, clinicians um, need to learn. And it's a hard skill to develop as well, I think. I think that's right. And and Rod, I mean, you, you've probably been at the, the patient end of receiving care and probably you've had situations where you've not maybe disclosed as many things as, as the, the person who was asking you needed to know simply because you didn't think about it. Indeed. And Ian, while you were talking there, it made me think, you mentioned right at the very start that introspection about mm. looking back of where you, what you might have missed. And I imagine this is, this is in all fields. That's a difficult thing to do. And especially when as a clinician, you look and say, here's the checklist of things I have to do and I've done them all and I'm not getting anywhere. That must be very frustrating and hard to sort of say that maybe there's something more that you could or should have been doing there. Yeah. And and um, it's very, I think, it's easier as a clinician to feel defeated. I'm not good enough. I haven't done so. There's something more I need to do when perhaps you have done your bit but you haven't done that partnering stage and you haven't actually um, uh, made the, th the thinking and the understanding that the patient has um, on the same plane as, as what you do. Yeah. We've spoken about this before, haven't we, Fran? And I think as a patient, and I've said this to you, I'm kind of passive in this whole thing. As a patient, I expect that the doctor will do things and then I will be fixed. How much do patients really need to be told, Ian, or have it explained to them that they are a part of this process and they need to be actively involved? Because that's really what you're talking about, isn't it? You can't control what happens when the patient's not in your office. Correct. You can't control what happens when you're, they're not in your office, but nor do you need to. What you do need to do is partner with that patient and find out what it is that their expectations are. Um, both for the treatment that they're receiving, but also for how that treatment might impact upon their lives. Um, and what do they want to ultimately achieve? Um, you can see in a lot of the um, guidelines um, that are being written for all sorts of conditions and even for accreditation standards for courses and for institutions that the partnering with the consumer component 
of the delivery of healthcare is becoming more and more important. Um, and institutions are being accredited based on how well they're able to partner with clinicians. Mm. Um, one of the projects that I'm a sponsor of uh, currently is looking at how we train patients to ask the appropriate questions. And there's all sorts of question building apps that people can use out before they even hit the, the clinic or the hospital where they can um, type in what, is, what matters to them and it will generate appropriate questions for them. Um, we're just doing a very simple, here are the five basic questions that you need to ask when you go into a, a, a medical office. What happens if I do nothing? What happens if I watch and wait? That type of a question. If you're enjoying these episodes and you'd like to be part of a like-minded community, why not join our Facebook group? Simply search The Wound Doctors ANZ on Facebook and click the Join Group button. If you'd like to get in touch for anything else, from questions to ideas for future episodes, please feel free to send an email to thewounddoctors at convertech.com. That's thewounddoctors at convertech.com. We look forward to any and all feedback. Now, back to the show. I think also, Ian, it's quite funny because um, often patients, especially older people, almost feel like they have to be passive. So yeah. my dad had a, a medical condition called polymyalgia rheumatica and, and he needed to have something measured in his blood. And, and I asked him to ask the doctor what the level was because I wanted to know because I'm nosy. And he was like, oh, I can't ask the doctor that. It's your doctor. And I'm like, why not? And he's I question like, the doctor. Oh, because, you know, he might think it's really odd and that I, I don't think he's treating me right. And I said, well, I don't know if he's treating you right. So if you tell me what that number is mm. and we can find out if it's going up or down, we can, you know, have another pair of eyes on the problem. And that's one so of the I questions think, that we get people yeah. to ask. What are my results and what are the implications for me? And then I think my dad felt a lot better, you know, because he made a little Excel spreadsheet because he's got a lot of time on his hands. And every week he'd like make a little graft. And when he saw his blood's going in the right direction, he was a very happy man. Mm. But otherwise, he probably wouldn't have had that level of empowerment, would he? He'd have just had the doctor saying, yeah, you're getting better. But he could actually see it on his graph. Has that relationship changed over time with society, Ian? Are patients more likely to ask questions? Because I'm like Fran's dad. I don't yeah. ask the doctor yeah. questions. The doctor knows it. And my mum's the same as me. But will my niece and nephew, will they be different? Will they be much more forward in asking what's going on? They are. Um, and um, these the, these question-building things, when, when I've piloted them with different groups of patients, um, elderly people, and, I, and I'm generalising here, elderly people, um, not that you're elderly, Rod. Um, <laughs> you've got grey hair, I know, Dan, and are diplomatically dealing with it. Thank you. Um, the, they are much less likely to ask questions and more of the mindset of doctor knows best. Um, and younger people are much more um, empowered, I think, to ask questions. What I suppose what will be interesting to see over time is whether they carry that behaviour with them into their old age or do they change their behaviour and, and become more of the doctor knows best as they get older? Are doctors different too, Dr Fran, than they used to be? Um, I think that, yes, uh, nowadays people are more willing to share information with their patients and I think that um, it's quite well recognised amongst um 
especially younger doctors, that when you have a good therapeutic relationship, you have more trust with the patient, they tell you more things, you can make better decisions with them on their care, and you'll probably get better outcomes. So, you know, we have all these um, things that Ian called modifiable risk factors. So these are things like persuading someone to change maybe their diet or their shoes or something about their environment or um, the kind of exercise that they're doing. But then, of course, we have um, non-modifiable things. So, for example, your age. Um, I suppose you can lie about it, but it doesn't really change. <laughs> like it, does. Does it? I've tried it, Fran. It doesn't change it at all. <laughs> <for sure. laughs> In some respects, um, just identifying those unmodifiable risk factors and acknowledging that perhaps we can't do anything about this, but that's okay because we can do these other things. Um, because the the last thing you want is for people to feel hopeless as well. Mm. I get the sense, Ian, that one of the things about medicine is that we as patients think it's fairly black and white. You have a condition, you institute treatment X and it's fixed. And I'm getting the sense that from doctors, that's not the case at all. (laughs) There's a million variable factors that make that just not the reality. Yeah. You can have two people with the same condition, you treat them exactly the same way and they have very different outcomes. Um, And so it's it's trying to, I think... um, when you do try to shoehorn those treatments into categories, that's when you come a cropper, I think. You, 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 you fail to recognise that there is a lot of variability and you've got to work with that variability, not steamroller over it. Is, is it the case, Dr Fran, that the more we know in some ways, the harder it gets because the target continues to move? Absolutely. And I think, you know, after working at the coalface, looking at diabetic foot ulcers, I kind of became a little bit obsessed with the wound microenvironment. So that's what's actually happening with all the cells, what's going wrong with them. So this um, put me through seven years of torture in a biochemistry lab eventually, because I did a PhD looking at this thing. And I, and I sometimes get asked about it. And, you know, I probably understand what goes wrong with the different cells in, for example, a diabetic foot ulcer. I probably understand it more than the average person. But I, I've realised that it's, a lot, it's one of those things that a lot of the times we can't actually manipulate it and change it. So there's no point in saying to somebody, oh, you're going to have too many neutrophils that are persisting in this wound and, you know, your matrix metalloproteinase levels will be exceptionally high at this point. I mean, there are a few things that you can do to augment it. So, for example, there are dressings that can um, pull some of the bad cells out of wounds but essentially it's such a huge problem and I guess what I learned is that when I tried to understand wound healing in terms of the wound itself more all I realized was that there was a lot of stuff that we don't know not just that I don't know but isn't known and there's a lot of things that we know about but we can't actually change them. That doesn't sort of help. Last question from me Ian. Uh, Can patients know too much? The doctor's kind of in control I guess with the knowledge of what all of the things mean can we go too much the other way where the patient knows too much? And we're, we're all familiar with the patient that's been to Dr. Google before they come to the yeah, real doctor and what that can mean sometimes. I wouldn't say people can know too much. People are the experts in themselves and we have to respect them for that. People can get very anxious about the knowledge that they may have picked up and may not be able to integrate it properly. And so they may develop a a skewed understanding of what might be going wrong. 
um, and and be more anxious. And I, so I think for some personality types, it can be detrimental. And it, it's the clinician's responsibility, I think, to be working with people to a make sure that they have the appropriate understanding, that they've integrated that knowledge so that it works for them in their paradigm of, of health, um, and that you can then um, use that shared common understanding with the patient to address whatever is modifiable um, to hopefully um, move towards a better outcome. I think um, I can think of an example when we used to work together at Royal North Shorey and every once in a while on the six o'clock news, there would be um, a segment about honey for healing wounds. And the next day, every patient would trot in with a bottle of Capilano saying, can I put this on? And and it, it almost opened this can of worms because sometimes it wasn't really in the interest of their wound to do that. And there was a side to this argument that, you know, hadn't been explained in the segment on a current affair or whatever. And, um, and so then when you suggested it perhaps might not be the right thing to do for this particular wound for these reasons, or you pointed out the gaps that do exist in the evidence, um, sometimes that would be quite um, confronting for them, wouldn't it? Yeah, so and, and it's a six-month cycle. You'll have honey in summer and you'll have pawpaw in winter. Um, and hopefully by Christmas you'll have a pavlova. And it's... It, it, I've, never asked, I've never had anyone wanting to put a pavlova on it. It won't be foot, long. But, um, <laughs> Don't do that with a pavlova. But there's a lot of things good. that wouldn't surprise me these days. But um, um, it, it's all... It, and they come in with this hope. You know, I found the miracle ingredient... Yeah. If only I had known this sooner. Um, and you, you do have to then retrain their thinking around it. It doesn't matter necessarily what you put on. If you, if you want to put a bit of honey on, we can. But it hasn't actually addressed the underlying modifiable causes of whatever this wound is. Yeah, like if you don't have a blood supply to this wound, <laughs> putting honey on it isn't might make it, it smell nice but it's probably not going to actually heal it. So, yeah, it's it's a very difficult situation to be in sometimes. And certainly, you know, nowadays when people are very able to get their finger on information, but often this information has not verified or is not accurate. And so as clinicians, this kind of gives us an extra job to do sometimes to explain these things. But I think that, you know, having these conversations with our our patients in a more open way about the modifiable risk factors, we can then help them to choose which risk factors they want to modify. And unfortunately, there are situations where people won't modify something. I, I remember having a chat with sky high blood glucose levels, and he was only about 40 and he had a a wound that wouldn't heal on his foot and he had diabetes and um he was drinking four liters of coke a day and I said could you just drink diet coke and he was like no and for him that was a very challenging thing whereas um you know I I don't really drink coke so it wouldn't be very hard for me to give up but you you don't always understand people's motivations but you have to work with them don't you, you did you try and ask him why he wanted to continue that behavior we we had a lot of conversations around it and um i think he was one of those people that had been bossed around by so many doctors mm. for so long that he was just running his own show and and we do see that quite a lot well smokers there's a yeah. uh, smokers will tell you they know that what they are doing is killing them yeah. and yet well, they'll continue to do it and I've been a smoker, so I know exactly what that yeah. sort of looks like. I feel like there's a whole episode 
in wound myths. And whilst there might be some lighthearted stuff in there, I guess there's probably some important things that people should know too, because I'm sure you've heard and seen all sorts of quite dangerous things in your time, both of you, that people have either heard from grandma or mm-hmm. read on the internet somewhere and just gone ahead and done something to a wound that they shouldn't have. Fran, have we got anything else for Dr. Ian on this particular topic? No, we must get Dr. Ian back and talk about so. wound myths, so because I think we've seen the whole gamut between us over the years, haven't we, Ian? Once upon a time in a far, far off land. <laughs> Our paid-for episode, friend. We'll make people pay to listen to that one because it'll be the good stuff. This has been The Wound Doctors. Dr. Ian, thank you for your presence today. It's been fabulous to have a chat. Thank you. And Dr. Fran, it is always a delight when I get to chat with you on these occasions. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, Rod. Thanks, Rod.